Before we start today's show, I could really use your help with something. As you know, Master Brewers is an association run by some of the hardest working folks in the brewing industry. They all have jobs, but also serve the association as volunteers in lots of different ways. I need your help filling a volunteer role that, in my opinion, is one of the simplest but most important jobs. It's super easy, doesn't take much time at all, but is critical to the value of membership and to this podcast. If you're willing to help me out and give back to this incredible association, please take a minute to go to masterbrewerspodcast.com slash working group to learn more. This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This episode was made possible by the following sponsors. Discover more ways to enhance flavor and maximize beer yields with Salvo. Now available in varieties like Sultana, Trident, Lotus, Calypso, Cascade, and many more. Discover how Salvo can help boost your brew at hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. And thanks also to Brew Ninja, a brewery software solution that streamlines your day-to-day operations, including inventory, accounting, sales, and compliance, so that you can focus on making great beer. Listeners of this podcast will receive a unique offer by going to GetBrewNinja.com and using the code BrewNinja21. Say a Chinook hop grown in Northwest Michigan is going to be different from one in Southwest Michigan. It's going to be different from Oregon and Washington. Is hop terroir a marketing construct? Is it a biophysical reality? This week on the show, a Master Brewers TQ paper explores the answer. My name is Aaron Staples, and I am a PhD student at Michigan State University in the Department of Ag, Food, and Resource Economics. Uh, Rob Sarine, uh, Michigan State University Extension Educator based in Leelanau County, Michigan. My name is Scott Stewart. I am head brewer of Silver Spruce Brewing. Uh, my name is Alex Adams. I'm the CEO of Cambium Analytica. Hi there, my name is Alec Mull. I'm the Vice President of Brewing Operations at Founders Brewing Company in Grand Rapids, Michigan. You had three empirical objectives in this study. What were those objectives? So really what we wanted to do with this study was understand whether terroir was a biophysical reality, a marketing construct, or both. So to tackle this question, we had this transdisciplinary project where we incorporated chemical analyses, sensory work with blind taste tests, and an economic experiment that looked at brewer willingness to pay for state-grown hops. What's a level four ecoregion, and why does that matter here? 
<laughs> I don't know how far back we want to go, but our, our kind of our intention of developing this study from the get go, and again, this is three years old now, or a couple couple years old anyways, was how we could help Michigan growers best compete, um, hop growers in particular, with the Pacific Northwest. And they're not going to compete on any kinds of scale or price. Um, and not until recently, we haven't had proprietary cultivars. So how do, how do we help them differentiate? And, you know, we had seen the Bar of Haas hop harvest guides and, you know, the different spiderweb charts. Um, and then, you know, Matt Brindelson came out with that lupulin distortion 006 that had all Michigan hops in it and suggested, yeah, there's something different about them. And so, we, you know, we started thinking about that, started, you know, talking to folks, um, investigated the literature, some of the work that Shellhammer had done and Ann Van Hall in Belgium and others. And we thought, well, Michigan's a super diverse state in of itself. And there are these different eco regions. Um, across the state and that's just kind of a, a combination of the the climate and the soil which kind of lends itself to unique um growing regions and unique terroir so and, and that's really that's really a, a quite a contrast from uh what's seen in the pacific northwest uh, i understand that pretty much all the uh the, the majority of u.s production happens in a in a much tighter area right yeah, and, and I talked to Alec Mull about this. He can he can correct me. I remember when I first presented this, he said, yeah, but there are variations out there too. Um, but yeah, I mean, Michigan has, oh, I don't know, 15, 16 different ecoregions where hops are grown. I think in, in Yakima, there, it's just, it's one ecoregion. Again, that's not to say that there aren't differences between farms and whatnot, but that was part of our goal was to look at a few different farms in Michigan and in that because they're, they are so varied in their topography and climate and soils and growing conditions that we might be able to tease something out of that. Um, and, you know, and our hope was that, say, a Chinook hop grown in northwest Michigan is going to be different from one in southwest Michigan. It's going to be different from Oregon and Washington. And why did you guys choose Chinook? We just kept hearing that there's something about Chinook hops that, that's different. Um, and you know they're they're kind of less dank piney uh more racy citrusy grapefruity um qualities and um you know alex do you want to talk i don't know if we want to jump ahead to what we found but yeah i think i think that we picked it because it was kind of a buzz in michigan there was a lot of michigan farmers that were growing chinook and i think that it was pretty pretty clear to the brewers that out of all the other varietals that were grown in Michigan, Chinook was probably like the most differentiated from Chinook that they were used to. Um, And so I think that that one stood out as something that was like, you know, um, uh, chemotypically, you know, going to change. And I think that we were going to see, you know, different preference and different chemical fingerprints from that hop more than we would with uh, varieties that are more stable. So I think it was just kind of like, it just was an obvious choice. um, I think just from, just from kind of the brewer's sentiment about it. Well, I'd also like to add in too that agronomically, you know, Chinook does really well. It's a really robust plant and uh, does really well here in Michigan and all the regions uh, as well as the Pacific Northwest. So I think it's uh, it's one of our favorite hops as well. Uh, I can't speak for all brewers, but it's a true dual purpose hop that's really robust and grows well in most every region. 
Okay, so you guys did a uh, you did a terpene analysis. Let's hear about that. Sure. So we um, we took the different hops and we were able to get hops from four different regions in the U.S. Two of them were in Michigan, and then one one was an Oregon farm, and one was uh, a Washington, a Yakima farm, and. This terpene method, we, we just tested terpenes on raw, raw hop pellets. Um, and what we found was, you know, we, we weren't looking for, it, it's really hard to, to translate an analytical test to something, to sensory. It's really hard to say like, oh, okay, this has, you know, these peaks in it and it has this concentration of these different terpenes. It must smell like that. It's, there's a big disconnect between what our olfactory senses and what an analytical test um, shows. But what was interesting is it was very clear that these were chemically very different. Um, and there was... Uh, in the Michigan hops, for example, um, I think that, you know, there just wasn't as much pinene. And, and in fact, one of the samples, um, there was no detectable levels of alpha pinene um, below, you know, like I think one ppm. There's probably alpha pinene. There's undoubtedly alpha pinene in, in that hop, but uh, we were measuring down to a, a limit of quantitation of, of one ppm. So um it's kind of cool because it just shows that these are different they're chemically different we know that they smell different um and this was just kind of a validation that they that they are chemically different too um and and quite and quite a bit quite a bit different so um what we did do terpene testing um obviously there's a lot of other uh, aroma compounds that that contribute to you know what is chinook um and so we tested 40 different terpenes, but I think in future research, what we'd like to do, and this is co uh, what we found out more commonly done um, with, with other uh, hop analysis, is we're probably going to actually distill the essential oil and do a much more comprehensive analysis of many more compounds that are aroma compounds. So, um, you know, we have uh, fruity ester uh, compounds, uh, terpenes, thiols all these different things that contribute to the, our sense of what that aroma is, terpenes don't really explain that uh, in a complete picture. So, but what they, what they're, they're really commonly marked, uh, one of the most common tests for hop, uh, uh, like hop QC tests really is all terpenes, all, all the most commonly tested compounds and the compounds that are at the highest concentrations are terpenes um, in the, in the hop oil. So, um, that was a good good place uh, to look for differences, um, and we had already had methods developed on GCMS for doing that. So, and did you see were there big differences in the terpene analysis between the Washington and Oregon grown ones as well, or the, the, were the differences really mainly uh, showing up between the the Michigan? Um, for sure, yeah, there there was differences. I'd say that there wasn't there wasn't anything that would lead us to say that there was a, a an absolute difference between or a significant statistical difference between an East coast and a West coast. I think that they were all kind of unique in their own way. Um, and that, you know, aligns with what, what uh, brewers uh, say about those hops too. I think that there is a distinction. Alec would know better, but there is a distinction between Chinook from this farm that we got it from in Oregon and Chinook from the other a Washington farm. 
Well, well, I will jump in there and say there's no question about it. And there's so many other influencing factors when it comes to, you know, what a hop rubs and smells and tastes like and uh, ultimately it smells like in your beer. Um, you know, you've got uh, all those variables, cultural practices at the farm, uh, beyond weather and agro system, um, training dates, uh, harvest date, uh, uh, running through the machine, the HSI of that lot. You know, there's a lot of factors that can continue to attribute to that. So a study like this is really, really challenging, I think, when you're really trying to evaluate the sensory experience. Um, to, to your point, Alex, I think that those terpene profiles also change as well um, based on harvest maturity date. So yeah. I think a, a, a true, really valuable study would be uh, you know like this, but much larger with more samples um, where we also look at pick dates as well, because I know that that's a huge factor on the aroma profile of the hops. Yeah, and I think if we controlled, if we isolated um, and controlled harvest uh, processing practices, and we were able to get samples pre-harvest or, or basically before they go through um, their, you know, commercial processing. And we were able to dry them the same way um, and control that variable. Um, that would be really kind of highlighting terroir more uh, than um, because that's a, such, a, such a big variable is how the hops are handled after they're picked what temperatures they're being dr dried at. Um, you know, there's a lot, of, a lot of these aroma compounds are volatilizing at uh, many different temperatures. So that's, that's a variable um, that could be controlled in a future study that would be kind of fun to see what is actually the effect of terroir itself when you remove uh, processing variables. You also did a, an unknowns analysis. What does that mean? So we can, with a GC, um, you can isolate compounds that you don't have standards for. And GCs have really specific ways and really repeatable ways that they ionize compounds. And um, they have libraries, basically, that you can search for um, the mass spectra uh, from, from that compound against a library of other compounds that have been um, run on GCs before. So it's kind of a cool tool if you can get separation of all these aroma compounds. And what we showed, um, we showed just a small, um, in the paper, there's a, a chromatogram and it shows a bunch of peaks. And there's, there's hundreds and hundreds of these peaks, which are individually um, eluding compounds. And you can highlight, um, you know, those peaks and search them against the library and get a certain amount of confidence that this is that chemical. And so we looked for one specifically um, called methyl butyrate, and we found uh, a peak that was a really high likelihood, 96% or something, that that was methyl butyrate, um, which is an ester. And methyl butyrate um, on its own by itself as a pure compound for most people smells like pineapple um, or kind of tropical. So we wanted to find that and just we use that as an example because and it kind of highlights the complexity of sensory um, because interestingly enough uh, in the in the consumer research panel the the hops that found uh, that the cons that the uh, the panelists found were the most tropical actually had the smallest uh, peak of methyl butyrate but there's many other compounds that also smell like pineapple and there's also the way that the nose works. Um, all of the, the, the kind of like entourage of all these compounds coming into the nose at once changes how we perceive them. So it's kind of a cool, um, it was just kind of a cool experiment. That's another, another part of this research that we can greatly expand upon 
is looking at more individual compounds besides terpenes. So, and I know you said you wanted to, you know, go beyond terpenes and and um, would would currently would would thiols and thiol precursors uh, be in this uh, in the unknowns uh, in this study in particular? Would they would they show up there or or not? So. It depends on which, like, at what concentration they're they're being they are in the sample. We at at our laboratory, um, we don't have instrumentation uh, that's set up to look at really really low levels, like you know, subpart per trillion levels um, that a lot of these styles are even that are their concentrations in hops are at, um, and our noses are really sensitive to them. So um, it's something that uh, it's totally possible to measure these things. Um, your precision, your accuracy of the measurement, it gets uh, quite a bit diminished when you're looking for smaller and smaller things. Um, so it would be in an unknowns analysis. We could find these things with a different instrument than the one I was using. Um, but there's, like I said, there was, we picked this methyl butyrate just to highlight the difference. Um, that was one of hundreds and hundreds of compounds that were unknown um, in these samples. So, you know, these, 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 there's volatile compounds. There's probably, there's, there's at least hundreds. We know that um, in these samples. Tell us about the second objective. Uh, what happened there? Yeah, so we basically brewed a five-barrel batch of beer um, that had very little bitterness to it. Um, we had about 10 IBUs in the wort, uh, but the wort was exactly the same in all four batches. We transferred one barrel of each variety from this initial batch into um, separate fermenters, and we dry hopped it. So it would be interesting to see how these different hops would do, you know, bittering, mid hops, all of this. So really this terroir was um, dry hopping. So we took one barrel um, from this five barrel batch into four separate vessels and we dry hopped it um, with each of the four varieties, um, an Oregon, a Washington and two separate Michigan batches. So all of the terroir that we're getting is all from the dry hop. Um, but, but I will agree that um, there was a lot of pineapple-type notes in the Michigan and more pine-type notes in the Pacific Northwest varieties. But they really were different from even the two Michigan batches and the two Pacific Northwest batches. Um, but there was, it was very interesting. Um, I've been brewing for a long time and most of my Chinook experience has been with Pacific Northwest. And it's been this very piney type, um, pine resin type flavor. And the Michigan 100% has a pineapple tropical element to it. Coming up, there's all these different factors that can influence the flavor profile of the hop. But what about the marketing side? I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas.
There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support. Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation works with your existing fermentation tanks to track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity in real time from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Get started for 30 days risk-free. Visit precisionfermentation.com MBAA. Support from this episode comes from BSG and The Malt House by RAR. The Malt House is your online source for cool and exclusive RAR malting company gear that you can't get anywhere else. T-shirts, hoodies, hats, socks, glassware, and even gear for your pets. Rep the malt you brew with and look sharp doing it. Take the tradition home at themalthouse.com. Are you looking to improve yield, quality, and sustainability in your cellar? Alpha Laval has over 60 years of brewing experience, offering centrifuges, dealkalization systems, yeast plants, and complete cold block cellar projects designed for the most gentle and efficient treatment of your beer, cider, hard seltzer, or other beverages. Let the leaders in brewing innovation help you meet your greatest production and sustainability goals. Visit alphalaval.us slash MBAA to learn more. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. District Philly's golf outing is June 24th. District Rocky Mountain meets June 28th at Sweetwater in Fort Collins. The Master Brewers Brewery Maintenance Systems course begins July 22nd. District Mid-Atlantic meets in Richmond, Virginia, July 23rd. District Midwest meets in Columbus, Ohio, July 30th. The 2022 Brewing Summit, that's the combined meeting with Master Brewers and ASBC, is August 14th through the 16th in Rhode Island. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. I could really use your help with something. As you know, Master Brewers is an association run by some of the hardest working folks in the brewing industry. They all have jobs, but also serve the association as volunteers in lots of different ways. I need your help filling a volunteer role that, in my opinion, is one of the simplest but most important jobs. It's super easy, doesn't take much time at all, but is critical to the value of membership and to this podcast. If you're willing to help me out, and give back to this incredible association, please take a minute to go to masterbrewerspodcast.com slash working group to learn more. Now back to the show. All right, so that's how you made the beer. Let's talk about what happened next. You guys did sensory uh, with a bunch of quote career career beer pr- professionals. Uh, so <laughs> tell us about who these who these career beer professionals were and how this sensory analysis went down. Yeah, sure, I can take a stab at that. Uh, so we did this blind taste test um, two different locations. Uh, so the first was at the uh, Great Lakes Hop and Barley Conference. Um, holy cow! Back in t- March 2020, like literally the last thing we did before COVID lockdowns. 
um, where we had these participants, primarily hop growers, uh, some barley growers, some brewers. They were presented with these four beers, beer A, B, C, and D, which had those four different hop samples that were uh, dry hopped, like Scott was talking about. And they were basically just asked to assess the sensory profile, um, eight different aroma attributes, as well as bitterness. They were also asked to assess just their general like appreciation over overall liking of the beer. Um, and what we did from there was just kind of aggregate the scores, calculate the means and see whether there are any differences. Uh, so that was our first panel. And then um, maybe Alec can talk more about uh, the founders panel, which was, I think, a little bit more highly trained panel. Yeah, so we have a sensory specialist. His name is Jason Vrosh, does an excellent job. Uh, uh, we use Draft Lab and basically took these samples, and we have a trained sensory team here. Um, and most of the folks here that are on this team are also the ones who help us with hop selection. So they are just got a lot of experience and uh, have been working here at Founders here for a long time. So we feel pretty confident in their description uh, and their, and their uh, lexicon as well. So uh, we had our team here help with this project in that regard. Okay, excellent. So let's hear about the results. To, to what did Sensory bear out here? Uh, so the results were kind of inconclusive. Uh, we only had about 60 people um, complete this uh, analysis. We had all these big plans to do some consumer work with this as well. Um, so with only a sample of 60, we were kind of limited with our statistical abilities there. So we weren't able to actually detect uh, statistically significant differences across um, these different attributes, uh, but we did see some uh, slight variation, primarily uh, with things like tropical uh, and bitterness uh, between, the, between the four beers. And Alec, were the results similar for your panel or were that, were, did anything different come out of that? Um, I, I don't know that they completely corroborated the panel, quite honestly. Um, I just went back and looked at the sensor data we collected on that. Um, and they might be a little atypical of what we'd expect. And I, I know where these pops came from. I think I even supplied them, or at least two of them. Um, and uh, we're purely familiar with both of these farms. And um, and looking at the sensory data, you know, maybe didn't corroborate um, entirely. They were noticeably different. Um, you know, back to Scott's com uh, uh, comment about pine and pineapple, right? So we noticed that too. And, you know, I think all of us, you know, really understand there's differences in these growing regions. So I, I kind of feel like this study was really just trying to confirm what, 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 what you brewers think is somewhat obvious, right? We, we understand that there's differences in these, in these growing regions. And we also understand there's differences even, even from year to year. So, you know, it's really challenging to think of the scope of a project to try to capture any annual differences you might have um, as it relates to, to, to weather, agriculture, you know, and again, cultural practices are really critical what are you feeding these hops you know are you do you like fish fertilizer are you a chemical fertilizer um again you know back to that early mid late pick you know, those are so influential um that uh the, the, they can't be ignored in a study like this and and uh, like i said this the, the scope would be massive to really do it justice um scott uh sorry rob also mentioned and and van hole and uh, Nita Van Lanschut. And uh, those two have done a lot of work on this, very extensive studies. And, and you know, again, are, are uh, probably leaders in this evaluation here too. So um, you can learn a lot of information from their papers that they have out there on these as well. Okay. All right. So uh, inconclusive sensory results. Um, by the way, I forgot to ask, um, 
were there any noticeable differences in terms of um, hop creep or anything like that? Did all these fermentations, you know, end up in, in roughly the same place, or uh, did you did you have any variation, you know, in that regard? I did not have any variation in that. Um, so we did dry hop at fermentation temp for thirty six hours uh, before we dropped. Um, just, you know, I, I think to alleviate any of that, if there is any type of hop creep thing, which is a pretty standard for me, um, but I did not get any diacetyl. I did not get any, um, I, I did measure the final gravity on all four beers and um, they were, they were no difference as far as a hydrometer could tell. Um, I think really the main difference was aroma and organoleptic. You decided to focus heavily on the economic value of hop terroir. Talk about why. Right. So that first, the two first components of this study were really looking at that biophysical reality, right? There's all these different factors that can influence the flavor profile of the hop. But what about the marketing side? Would the place of origin and this idea of like a nested name have value not only to the brewers, but would it also have values to the consumers? Explain what you mean by nested name. This idea that a Pacific Northwest Chinook hop will be different than a Michigan Chinook hop. Or there was another recent example uh, looking at Cascade, uh, the Cascade from Washington versus Cascade from New Zealand, which was recently renamed Taihiki. Um, so this idea that the place of origin adds some additional value uh, or context to what flavor profile you're going to get from that hop variety. I could have told you that most brewers are willing to pay more for locally grown ingredients, but you went about studying that phenomenon in a much more sophisticated scientific way. Talk about your discrete choice experiment and maybe start with an intro to DCE because a lot of folks listening probably aren't familiar with that term. Absolutely. Yeah. So what a discrete choice experiment will do is present respondents. In this case, we had about 80 brewers respond to this survey. It will present them with this choice task. It's going to say, imagine you are buying a pound of hops for your brewery. Envision that it's the hop you purchase most commonly for your brewery. Among these different options that we're going to present to you, which one would you select? And what we do in this experiment is we present the participant with three different options, as well as an option to purchase none. And in each choice task, it will give the respondent the option to pick a hop from their home state, the Great Lakes region, or the Pacific Northwest. And what will also vary here is the price per pound. So what's nice about this experimental design is it allows us to measure the trade-off that brewers are making between the place of origin and the price without explicitly asking them to do so. In other words, we're not just saying, hey, how much are you willing to pay for local hops versus non-local hops? Or would you be willing to pay a premium for local hops? Instead, we're setting up this 
context that really resembles a real world purchasing decision. And then we use some statistical methods to back out uh, willingness to pay. And then we can compare those willingness to pay for the state grown hops versus the Pacific Northwest grown hops and compare those two willingness to pays to see what sort of premium consumer or the brewers in this case are putting on state grown hops. And you also looked at the role, you also looked at um, how, what they would be willing to pay for global gap certification. Talk about that too. Right. So the global gap certification um, is a third party certification that kind of says this meets certain practices. Um, so it's saying that brewers are willing to pay about a dollar premium uh, for this attribute on the hops. So for the farmer to get this certification for the hops. Okay. So just how much of a premium are consumers willing to pay for local beer brewed with local hops? So that's a great question. Um, there was one study done uh, just last year looking at state-grown hops in Indiana that was saying that consumers would be willing to pay a, a slight premium for locally sourced ingredients in in their beers. Um, there's also been a few papers, uh, Jarrett Hart, uh, his paper comes to mind uh, from UC Davis, uh, looking at, I think the paper's called Drink Beer for Science. Um, and it's looking at consumers' willingness to pay for locally brewed beer. Uh, again, they, they find in that study that brewers or consumers are willing to pay a premium for uh, local hops. I don't or locally brewed beer, sorry. Uh, I don't remember the exact premium off the top of my head. Um, but what we find in this study is that our brewers in our sample are willing to pay up to a 35% premium for state-grown hops, holding all else constant. So what that means is that they're thinking about the exact same cultivar across the different uh, growing regions, they're th thinking of them as having the exact same consistency, um, which can be a limitation, right? Like Rob was saying at the start of this call, the, this idea that Michigan didn't get access to a lot of the proprietary hops until recently. So this idea that these brewers would be able to get state-grown proprietary hops, say Citra was their most commonly purchased hop. That might have been slightly unrealistic, but it's still giving us some evidence that there is this marketing side of terroir because uh, there could be a few different things driving this price premium, right? This idea that first, the brewers might just want to support local farmers. Okay, so this idea that they want to support the state economy, support local growers. There could also be this idea that they could push some of this premium that they're paying on the hops onto the consumers. Um, so within this survey, we also asked the brewers whether they think their consumers would be willing to pay a premium for beers that use local hops. Um, and about 60% said, uh, yes, uh, we could probably charge about a dollar premium on um, our beers that use local hops. But that final factor that could contribute to this willingness to pay um, the premium for locally grown hops is this idea that local hops have this local terroir. They taste different than non-local hops. Uh, we ask the brewers about this in the survey. We ask them specifically uh, to state their agreement or disagreement with the following statement, quote, local hops taste different than 
hops from other states. Um, and about 90% of the brewers agreed with that statement. So there could be a few different factors driving that price premium for local hops. Um, but it does give some evidence to this idea of local terroir and the marketing side of terroir. Talk about hypothetical bias. Oh, hypothetical bias just means this idea that the brewers didn't actually have to buy whatever hops they were um, selecting. So this idea that they're just filling out a survey online. Um, so there's no real punishment for them making suboptimal decisions. Uh, so in terms of maybe they weren't really willing to pay that high price for the local hops because they didn't actually have to. Um, so we do some uh, data cleaning work to make sure that we're kind of accounting for that. I think one of the big things here is um, perceived quality. So I think that a brewer and a consumer is willing to pay more for something that they believe that the quality is there. And I think the Michigan hops um, have come a long way, and I think that their quality has increased quite a bit. But I think one of the big things that uh, brewers have, at least, is even outside of the hop grower are how are these hops processed, how are they packaged, and are they going to compare to you know some of the um, hop manufacturers that have been doing this for a long time. You know, I think a brewer will definitely pay a premium for something that they feel is a quality product that's packaged well, that's going to store well, and that's going to do them, you know, that's going to increase the um, quality, if you will, whether that's flavor or whether that's stability or whether that's HSI or whether that's in several ways. And I think that the Michigan hop industry has increased in quality through the years from and i've only been here for a short amount of time um, approaching five years but i think the quality has increased i think the packaging has increased i think the processing has increased in quality um, and that's what at least i'm only one person here so the sample size is very small i'm willing to pay for quality I mean, I'm going to chime in here, too, to make us two people, Scott. Um, but, you know, I concur entirely, right? I, I've been involved here with the hot Michigan hop industry for some time now um, and uh, have really seen some dramatic improvements. So not just in quality, but like you said before, in processing and packaging. And, then of course, in food safety, which is really critical. So being a member of the hop quality group, um, we've been really trying to be really active with our hop partners here in Michigan, trying to help them improve and elevate their game. Um, and, and I'm with you, too, Scott. I think all us brewers, we're just trying to make the best beer we can. And we're willing to pay more for better ingredients to a certain point, of course. Um, and all things being equal, if we think that that product's going to make our beer better, we're going to be inclined to purchase it. Um, I think general consumers uh, want to buy things that are local and help support their community, their state. Um, and uh, we continue to see Michigan be able to elevate their game so that they can actually provide that. Because let's face it, those folks in the Pacific Northwest, they do a damn fine job. They make some excellent, they grow some excellent hops out there. And they have a lot of experience and infrastructure um, that we just don't have here in Michigan. So we're catching up. We're doing great. Um, but they've got a, a, a lot to compete against out there in the Pacific Northwest. And uh, But we're doing really well here. So I want to just put that plug in for Michigan Hops there from, from Alec Mullet Founders. All right. So um, if we decide that terroir is undetectable by the consumer but still matters only because it differentiates the product story, how much does local matter versus just different? 
for example, if I brew a beer in Virginia with hops grown in Montana and market that, do you think the results would be different than if I brewed with Virginia hops or Michigan hops or better yet, estate grown Virginia hops? And I asked that question as a guy who spent several years brewing almost exclusively with the state grown barley, which I think is super cool, but I'm not convinced most consumers care about it. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great point. Um, I think you do have that niche group of consumers, right, that really enjoy this idea that we could have a local brewer using local hops from a local farmer to brew a local beer for a local consumer. Like there's this really cool kind of food supply chain that we can create with this whole, sorry, beer supply chain of having all local ingredients for local brewers. Um, Whether consumers are actually going to care about it, you'll have a, you'll have a segment that will, you'll have a segment that won't. They just want that standard beer. Uh, but there does need to be a lot more research in that realm to really know um, how much that consumer is willing to pay for local ingredients in the local beer. Because um, like I mentioned that one study earlier, that's the only study that has really looked at local ingredients. Uh, so a lot more work could be done on that consumer side. I want to get into a question that I've asked on the show before and uh, that you mentioned in the article As we all know, there have been numerous studies on the impact of harvest timing, uh, and there's been a focus in recent years on kiln temperatures, airflow, bed depths, all that kind of stuff. So we know that we can get drastically different results by manipulating any of those variables and more. How the heck do we eventually tease out which differences are from which variables? Yeah, I'll I'll at least try to touch on that. That's... That's kind of the, that'd be, uh, in, in order to design an experiment like that, you would have to do, like, I think, like, uh, Alex mentioned earlier, you're going to have to get hops before they're harvested and then run them all at the same time, which is going to be real difficult to do. If you're talking about shipping fresh hops from Yakima to Michigan or, or vice versa. So I'm not sure, you know, I think you just start peeling away um, or or picking away and trying to figure out how you can make this research better and better and better. And um, I I don't know if we'll ever ever be able to do that. I I don't know about you, but I certainly don't do everything exactly the same way that I did 10 or 20 years ago. And plants are no different. What role do you think plant age may play in all of this? Is that a significant factor, all else being equal? I I bet that would be... uh, a variable that's not impossible to study. Uh, another great, excellent point. That was the other thing that we we're going to um, hopefully try to look at as well. Um, because, you know, what is it? Two, three, four years in versus a mature plant that's, you know, 10, 12, 14 years old. Those are going to have different aroma profiles. Um, so you have that difference and then you have, you know, the annual difference. Um temperature weather fluctuations uh so that's another that's another good topic to uh to try to get into and look at that was aaron staples rob serine alec mole scott stewart and alex adams here on the master brewers podcast check the show notes for a direct link to their publication the master brewers technical portal
Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Brew Ninja, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. Thank you.